0: Welcome to A Voice for the Kids, Child USA's podcast series with newsmakers, experts, and survivors. Child USA is a nonprofit think tank that puts the best social science with the best legal analysis to end child abuse and neglect. Thanks for joining today. Today, I have the honor of talking to attorney and author. Stephen Rubino. Steve has changed the world with his pioneering work to save children who have been sexually abused in his own church, the Catholic Church. He has written a beautiful book, a readable book about a couple of survivors and the family story that comes with them. I love it, it's called An Act of Faith and I highly recommend it and let's get started and have a really nice chat with Steve. Welcome Steve.
1: Thank you, good to see you.
0: Great to see you too. I I just, uh, this book is brilliant, but before we get to it, um, I thought the audience would really be interested in how did you get into the space of child sex abuse cases? I and mean, you were one of the early ones. How how did how this draw you in?
1: Well, it was actually um serendipity. My wife, best friend from grade school, sister, was uh given the information that her son had been sexually assaulted by a Catholic priest. And um She called my wife, Helen, and of course, Helen called me. And one afternoon uh, in July on the beach in Margate, she came down and she told me the story. And I'd been a product of Catholic school education from the cradle elementary school, high school, college, Catholic University, law school. And I lived right across the street from a Franciscan monastery, and I was raised right in the city in DC priests were in my house, at least on a weekly basis during the holidays, sometimes mm-hmm. a few times a week. And I had a peculiarly healthy view of the priesthood. I was an altar server at the shrine. And when I first heard the story, my initial response was, well, that just could not have happened. Because and, and priest,
0: what because year priest, was that?
1: That was in nineteen eighty-six, seven, wow. somewhere in that somewhere in that area. And I said, "Mary, priests are celibate. What are you talking about? This is this is like beyond the pale." At the time, you know, I was doing civil rights litigation, constitutional law stuff. Um, I think I met you a few years after that. I was doing a lot of medical negligence work, and it was just. Something that I couldn't get my head around, that it was so out of any experience that I had had with priests that I didn't believe it. I said something might have happened. I don't know what, Mm -hmm. but that could not have happened. And to make a long story short, I started dipping into what the police investigation looked like, how strong a case they had, trial, Uh, the indictment conviction, the sentence. And then at that point in time, you know, uh, I was an associate. I wasn't even a partner in my firm. And uh, I said, well, hell, something should, could be done about this. So I wrote a letter. It was a, a pretty simple letter. And I attached a draft complaint, had no idea, really, the type of complaint that I was filing, something simple, and, negligence.
0: And who, are, who was
1: the letter addressed to? General counsel to the Camden Diocese. Wow. And basically, they said fine. <laughs> and I, you know, it was like, what do you mean fine? I, I mean, I can remember the phone call. What do you mean fine? I I put a, a significant demand on it. And they said, well, we read your letter. We understand it. And uh, we're going to pay. And they did.
0: So you just sent a single letter. This wasn't a lawsuit. You just sent no. a letter. You no. said... You knew a victim of this guy that just got prosecuted and convicted and right. take it. And then they say, OK, we'll be sending the check.
1: Yeah, pretty much that. I mean, it had to go through a friendly settlement because it was a minor. Yeah. And um, that got a couple lines in the Philadelphia Inquirer way in the back. Another person called, same perpetrator, same result. Wow. And at that point in time, I knew that I had stumbled onto something that um, by that time, I began talking to reporters around the country, mm-hmm. calling them up. I reached out to Richard Uh um, And
0: just for our uh, audience, Richard Sype is who, besides Richard a dear Seid friend?
1: is a former Benedictine that had done, at the time, uh, the most research on clerical celibacy and the history of that, and was a treater. And he kind of filled me in on a on a blind spot that I had had uh, about the priesthood and introduced me to the concept of clericalism. Mm-hmm. And that led to my meeting with Tom Doyle. And
0: I mean, Tom Doyle's another hero in the movement.
1: Yeah, and that pretty much is the history. And uh, as a result of the meeting with Richard and talking to Tom, I actually met him Uh, While he was in the Air Force, I think right after he had gotten fired (laughs) from his position in the the Vatican hierarchy, he was secretary to the Papal Nuncio, which is the Vatican ambassador, uh, Pio Laghi, And uh, he blew the whistle and started talking to people, started talking to people like me.
0: So let's just go back to um, I wanted to ask you. How did you know that the two people to speak to were Sype and Doyle? I mean, they're giants in the field now, but back in the 80s, how did you find them?
1: I found them through uh, reporters. I looked uh, online. At the time, I was a a budding expert at the Internet research uh, weapon. I was fascinated by... uh, a computer system called Dialog, which was the uh, successor to the University of Michigan work in putting together the Internet and the index to periodicals, was available. So it did not require me to go down to the Library of Congress and page through those hundreds of volumes. And I started researching and I started looking at literature uh, about priests and sex. And Sipe's name popped up and i didn't know who he was where he was and i used my um background as a criminal investigator all the way back to a florida prosecutor's office to find him because it was it was shocking to me it, it it totally upended everything that i thought about as far as the need for religion more or less on the planet and what it meant to me and Act of faith is by no way a slam on anybody that has faith. There's a line in the book that says, you have to have just as much faith to believe in God as to not believe in it. That turned out to be really true. Yeah. Uh, and that whole scene's played out early on in the book. And it was kind of a cornerstone for me to just look at this a lot more empirically you know, w- w- what's out there? What I mean, What? why did I have uh, an incredible belief that priests are, are celibate because of some special characteristic? And uh, when I found out that it was more related to property holdings in the uh, earliest centuries, 1200, 1100, I was shocked. Like, I don't know why. I, I, I shouldn't have been shocked. I, well, but... In you it.
0: were in a loving Italian Catholic family. I was. You were an altar boy at the shrine of all places. I was. And and no one ever did anything bad to you on behalf <laughs> of the church. No. no. I mean, your <laughs> empirical experience was that it was, a what, transcendent? I mean, it just was fabulous, right?
1: It was. It was. Um, now, looking back. And I hasten to add, nothing untoward happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said, we lived right across the street from the Franciscan Monastery. And there were brothers there. I was heavily involved in sports. I was very fast when I was a youngster. Uh, I had good hands. And I played football with these grown men. I played every day. And um, one of them was about to be ordained, and I got invited to his ordination. Now, I'd been going as a kid to the Franciscan Monastery all my remembering life. Mm -hmm. Um, But that day, I was upstairs in the organ loft by myself, looking down on this ordination, and that's where they put me. Wow. And I said, wow, this is really something. So I went through the ordination had a reception, went over to lunch um, and I'm walking down the hall and I see a sign that says refractory. And I didn't even know what that word meant. <laughs> and basically it's a chow hall. And I got in there. Um, I was the only youngster there. I was probably about 12, 13, 14. And um, it felt really weird. It just... I I picked up a vibe that was just uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I couldn't put my figure on a, finger on it then. I can't now. I just remember having a sense of discomfort, and I got up, I went to the door, and I walked home, and that was wow. it. Wow. I left. So you 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 likely came close, frankly. Maybe. Um, yeah. I thought about it as. Uh, you know, there wasn't there wasn't any particular reason why this particular uh, Franciscan brother paid that much attention to me. You know, my parents thought it was absolutely wonderful. They were pushing hard. My oldest brother went to Georgetown. My middle brother, he went to GW, but he went to GW on a golf scholarship, and he was headed to law school. So somebody from Georgetown, somebody's going to be a lawyer. Hey, why not a priest? This is good. <laughs> And um it stuck with me. Yeah. All these years stuck with me.
0: So you had this wonderful childhood, it sounds like, I um, did. in the church as an altar boy. You learn as uh you're already a seasoned attorney, and you learn that there's sex abuse in the church, and then you do your research and learn that there's a lot of it. And so you dedicate yourself yeah. to this arena. And litigated, you were part of the set of attorneys that led the way in California with the first window. Yeah. And now you are, you've written this wonderful book, which is so rich with love and details between the characters. And it's about a family, really. And the path a family takes when a priest uh, mm-hmm. destroys part of it. Yep. So- how did you get the? First of all, thank you for writing it as historical fiction. It's really readable. It's enjoyable in terms of its writing and its plot development. But how did you get this idea that you would just create, you know, a novel, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, that would reflect all that you'd taken in? What? How did that happen?
1: We had, uh, I had, been talked to by a reporter in the Boston Globe at the time, Mike Resendez. Throughout the the Cardinal Law fiasco, uh, and when he he stepped down, and we had sporadic contact with him. I, I got a few calls, uh, I guess, from people that were working on the film Spotlight. Uh, it was mostly corroboration type calls. I didn't participate in the in the storyline or the plot line. And then um, I actually watched the movie with a friend in Florida. Uh, we were vacationing down there. He was a lawyer. We were sitting around looking for something to do at night. And uh, we watched Spotlight. And I watched it. It was a great movie. At the end of it, I started to get agitated because it was a phenomenal movie in the spirit of all the president's men. And I concluded at the time, it was a first great top-shelf journalism movie. But what it really didn't get to, I don't think, was the destructive nature and the toxicity of this abuse as it relates to families and their legacies and their children and their grandparents. And uh, David David Carter, there's no reason I can't share his name, uh, says, you ought to write about this. You ought to sit down and write about it. And I quickly realized that I could not write a nonfiction book and do justice to any form of the attorney client privilege. Mm -hmm. It was too complicated to even undertake getting releases from everyone. And it was um, not the right thing to do. They had, you know, the survivor community had lived through enough. I mean, the some yes. of the tactics that the church lawyers used are are, de- are despicable. They are the worst of humanity. Now that sounds a little strong, but I watched it, so I've got license to label it. It was the worst of humanity. That I. What, what you're talking about is in the context of the cases. The cases themselves the and tax- how
0: the church attorneys essentially tortured
1: the victims exactly part of their defense their defense yeah uh, was to break them yeah and then make them go away and then make them sorry that they ever came and darkened the door of people like myself and and jeff anderson and paul monas and all the all the uh, richard Serbin. i mean mm-hmm. he had a case that lasted 22 years i know So I said, gee, uh, how would I do this? And um...
0: so you had seen, and this is one of the things I think the American public does not fully understand, the cruelty of the church's attorneys against the victims, um, which continues to go on, foot foot dragging, no trauma-informed treatment, um, and just torturing them through discovery and depositions and all the rest. So, so that led you to okay, can't possibly do a nonfiction book, correct? But so, how did it transition to this work of uh, historical fiction, essentially?
1: Well, after uh, after I talked to David, you know, I had a plane ride back home and I started really grinding on it. I had been thinking about this kind of off and on for years. And back when the California cases concluded, three critical people passed away. Rachel, yeah. Uh, Ed Ross, Mm -hmm. and my right hand, left hand, and legs, Carol Cuoco. And I had no idea this had happened. But as cases closed, over the 30 years we were together, I had a habit of writing stray notes, handwritten notes, all over the file. Bus stations, airport lounges, waiting, this, that, and the other thing, about where I was, what I was doing, who I was seeing, who I was talking to. And, you know, I I would put a lot of notes about the emotion of what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I had no idea, but when cases closed, she stripped out all those notes from each file (laughs) and labeled them and put them in a drawer. Oh, my gosh. Well, a drawer got to be a box and a box got to be two boxes. And ultimately, uh, there were three boxes or six boxes that were in our filing system that said, Carol's notes uh, do not remove. I never looked at them. I didn't want to look at them. Um, I, you know, Her death had hit me pretty hard because basically it took away all of the people between Ed and Rachel and Carol that I had relied on to go traipsing all over the country doing this work. Because I knew work was getting done. The hard work was getting done back at the office. And all of a sudden, I didn't have any of that. So the the learning curve, you know, a 30-year learning curve about how this litigation, how these cases work, you just can't get off the street. I don't care how much money you want to pay somebody. So I opened the boxes, and I saw this stuff, and I was shocked. I could not believe that it was Organized by year, by client, um, and it had copies. If it, you know, I'd write on little scraps of paper. That, you know, the, remember the pink phone messages? Yeah. I fill those puppies up because <laughs> they. I always had them. Yeah, we didn't have smartphones. We right. had pink message slips. So I'd get, I'd go on a, a plane ride somewhere, and I'd leave with a, you know, a half inch stack of them and I'd return the calls, but I had them, so I'd start writing on them, because they were easy to write on them in a plane, just turn them lengthwise, and start writing, so she, uh, and I dumped them back into the file, so when I actually paged through all of that stuff, I saw the development of hundreds of composited characters, and abuse situations, and stories, and the grandparents and aunts and uncles that I had met and the the survivors themselves and their employers that I had interviewed, their ex-wives, their girlfriends, their current wife and listening to what it was like to be on the inside of that house. Mm -hmm. Not, Not what was on paper, what it was like to be on the inside of that house and that's how that I should have known that this was might've happened because this is how we approach the California cases. I realized early on in looking at file descriptions and expert reports and psychological damage evaluations that if you read more than a half a dozen of those at one time, you, you start to get numb, right? You start to, okay, well, I know what's going to happen here. And you move on to the next paragraph. well, expand that out over thousands of cases. And that's when we decided to begin to hire more audio technicians and video technicians than lawyers, because I needed to tell those stories and I needed the survivors to tell them because they were the only ones that could speak to it. They were only the ones that could resonate with the emotion, keep it together and explain to somebody what it is like to live with this toxicity all of your life. Right, right. The public has this microcosm of, well, case was filed, case was litigated, case was settled, off you go. It doesn't end. No, no. And and the thing is, is
0: that I do think that we have a tendency and the media has a tendency to focus on the perpetrator and the victim. Right. And for sure, the American public doesn't understand that this ripples out through the entire family and friends and the culture. So and an act of faith tells that story of a loving family with strong characters. Everybody has a viewpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. Sounds like my family.
1: Yeah, it's a family.
0: Uh, yeah, it's a real, real family. family. And you brought it to life. Um, how long did it take you to write this? I mean, this ha- couldn't have been done in a,
1: a week. No, it took, uh, well, it took about four and a half to five years uh, to get all the research done to, I mean, I had to, I, I've got this, you know, I failed a Florida bar exam a couple of times and there was a really peculiar method of my failure. I was doing extremely well in the essays and I was doing extremely poorly in uh, the multiple choice. Mm-hmm. Well, come to find out, this, uh, this brilliant guy down in Florida gave me a white ruler to take multiple choice questions with, didn't have anything on it. So I was only reading one line at a time. Mm-hmm. And he said that you've got a form of visual dyslexia. Uh, it's not particularly rare, but it does happen. And if you're tired or if you're stressed, it will happen again. And uh, I took the Jersey bar with my little ruler. Didn't have anything on it except this was a three inch piece of plastic. I was able to go down, keep everything straight, and you know everything was fine. I passed. But the the point of that was that all of this history that's involved in these abuse cases, dates back centuries, Yeah, centuries. And that is the one thing that I am still shocked by. And when I looked at the compositing of characters, it was clear to me that there was enough similarity in the stories and a, enough emotion from the parents and grandparents that I was able to craft that in not so much a story but in a sense a legacy to the family of survivors this is how it really is Uh, that run that elizabeth takes on the mall those types of things happened yeah that uh, physical exertion was the only way to make the demons go away had survivors call it the blackness and uh, one in particular call it a black box. And I've, I've heard from a number of people where that's how they process their abuse going into the future. They put it in a black box and they put it on the top shelf of their closet. And it's okay when it's there, but they never know when it's gonna open. Mm-hmm. And it can be opened by a scent English leather, for example, a song, a type of food, a trip someplace. It's, it, music is the ultimate time traveler, but so are memories. And um, that's how we, uh, I put it together. I mean, the, the hardest part was taking uh, two trips with the dog cross country. Mm-hmm. to get a feel for how they were going to come across from the state of Washington all the way to the East Coast. On a trip that the the character, Tom Atkinson, wanted to take all his life. He wanted to drive across country from one duty station to the next. And he wanted to go on what is called the Northern Tier route, which is Route 2. Mm -hmm. And he was going to take his dog. So I did that twice.
0: How (laughs) long of a trip is it?
1: Well, you can do it in three and a half to four days hard driving. But uh, I took about 10 days each time just to get a sense and feel for the buildings and the stops and the locations. Um, There's quite a few trails right off the highway that Tom and Elizabeth frequent as she's processing this. I mean, the storyline is she meets Barbara Blaine. There's a few people in the book that appear as themselves. Barbara Blaine is one of them. David Clossie is another one. Jeff Anderson is another one. Jason Berry is another one. Well, he doesn't appear, but his book appears.
0: I mean, they were all there at the foundation, which yeah. is when you started in this.
1: When I started. Yeah. The people that I met in the late 80s, and they are all, you know, you hear that saying, it takes a village. Well, you yeah. did. They all contributed to this. Uh, in fact, Barbara, I was not going to let this out to the public until Barbara Blaine had read all of the abuses in the book, and not so much signed off on them. But my question to her was, do these resonate with you Mm -hmm. as a survivor? And uh, suffice it to say, they did. And um, unfortunately, the the last voicemail I got from her was right before she passed away in 2017. And she had just read chapters two and three. And uh, Mm. that was was disconcerting. That was sad.
0: Well, with respect to Barbara, didn't you represent her? I did. So you've got
1: to tell us that story. They kept giving her the dodge. And I believe, I'm not entirely sure, Tom Doyle said, why don't you call this guy in New Jersey? And I did, and I went out to her house and where, you know, sat around the dining room table that uh, her perpetrator began her his assault of her, met her mom, her sisters. From there we we put together settlement demand and the documents around it, and we had a mediation with the bishop. Mm-hmm. And the case settled. I mean, I think the reason the case settled was they knew that Barbara was not going to go away. (laughs) No
0: question. But but she was out of statute, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Ohio has been locked down in terms of justice for victims. I'm glad to hear they paid on at least
1: Barbara. Marcy, all of my cases up until California were out of statute. Is that and and there was none
0: of them. It was inconceivable that the bishops were going to let it go to litigation, I take it.
1: It was. It was yeah. just it was. they I were mean, just it buying was. off.
0: They just, okay.
1: There was a were, sense. There,
0: were there secrecy agreements as part of the settlement? No. No.
1: Um there were early on, and this is something I wish I had not done, but early on uh there were. Uh, right. Then it moved to uh, you can talk about anything in the case except the the money, right? Except about right. the money, right? And then uh, in the charter, um, they did away with all of the secrecy agreements, but they still tried, right? For you know, and and by that time there was a lot of unwitting lawyers that were doing this work, and you know it was just like well, if they got clearance from the client, they didn't care, right? You know, that was, uh, and you know, they didn't
0: know that this was a systemic, huge conspiracy, um, that they'd walked into.
1: No, no,
0: I mean, no, no one did.
1: Yeah. Um, I was just talking to Jeff yesterday, or a couple of days ago, and we were talking about uh, an issue relating to discovery, jurisdiction to not be named. And what was interesting about the call was he knew that he had to educate the judge on this whole conspiracy right. and it you know it is the subtitle of act of faith it is the largest some would argue the longest criminal conspiracy perpetrated against children in the united states right and i suspect you could say
0: globally right well, given the size of the Catholic Church and the way this has been baked into the system, I think it is global.
1: It's a great phrase baked into the system. And that's exactly what made it a systemic conspiracy. And if you if you read the 1917 code of the Code of Canon Law, mm-hmm. compare it to the 1985 code, compare it to the documents that came before. The 1917 code. This was secret. This was a scandal, and it was to be suppressed at any cost. Right. And um, like I, I've said before, um, and when I lecture on this, when your product is eternal salvation, <laughs> okay, you can do that. Yeah. You can get people convinced that hey, can't we can't we cannot go there. I mean, I saw that. Let me tell you a story. You know that I filed the first racketeering case against the Catholic Church right. in 1993. Mm-hmm. Well, before I filed that case, I took every one of those perpetrators, and I believe there was close between 30 and 40 identified in a 640 page complaint filed in federal district court in Camden, New Jersey. Wow. I took every one of those perpetrators to a meeting with the FBI and the Atlanta County Prosecutor's Office. Okay, I have no idea whether they have any record. I suspect the FBI does because they keep records of everything. I laid it all out. They looked at me like I had six heads.
0: <laughs> I'm sure they did. That's the last thing they want to hear.
1: That is uh, something. And that was repeated time and time again. The police in, uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, they would get the, they'd find these boys that were escaping the Irish Christian brothers on the streets. Uh, St. John's, I you can't, I mean, you can't go anywhere. Right. And they'd bring them back to the orphanage time, and time and time again. Yeah. Now, you know, Fortunately, Supreme Court of Canada saw its way through, and that case came to a conclusion.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it ain't pretty for the Archdiocese of St. John's. Uh, and it shouldn't be. No. But you know, these are all of the things that when you look at the history behind all of this, and you look at the people that were involved and the people that I've met on both sides. Uh, and there's a line in the book that said, you know. To the defense attorneys that talked to me, I thank them. to the ones that didn't want to be mentioned in the book and talk to me, I thank them more. <laughs> because it was important that their behavior see the light of day, the reasons behind it. Yeah. Uh, and it was important that there be a record of how family processes this. It's not, it doesn't go in a straight line. No. In, in the book, you have an Orthodox Catholic mother. You've got a not so reverent, irreverent father. You got a completely irreverent lesbian aunt. You got a grandmother and grandfather that are like, "What is happening?" <laughs> okay, so you have all of the the characters that I witnessed get victimized by the system, get abused by the system, that were abusive to. Uh, survivors and had to deal with the sequelae of a family trying to navigate this entire scenario. It's so filled with heart. Honestly, from page one,
0: I wanted to know more about these characters. They really meant something to me. And of course, you know, I've been studying this for over 20 years. And so they spoke to me, but even more, um, it's written. It's written by a very skilled writer. It's not just a report. I think that we we make some mistakes. Of course, we make lots of mistakes. But yeah. thinking the public is going to read the dry accounts of these issues and then absorb it and get it, or that the media is going to put together all the tendrils that you've brought together, I think it takes art. Literal art in order to teach the world. I think that's why Spotlight works so well. Uh, it's not you've got to suspend your disbelief and just experience it. Just getting through a back faith.:
1: yeah. That's very true, and that, that was some of the comments we're, we're starting to get. and um, this is uh, you point to a question or an issue that is out there. Uh, this book was not well received by the frontline publishing world because of two issues it was too long Mm -hmm. and the field had been plowed right Right. and that is that is an enemy that we have to fight against the field has not been plowed no and uh, you're right people are not going to want to see one story after another in a sterile in a septic environment this is what happened to me this is what happened to me this is what happened to me there is so much more to how uh, Toxicity goes through human culture that we have to understand the tendrils, you know, to choose one of your words, the tendrils of how this reaches out and how it affects our economy, how it affects our culture, how it affects our belief in our our institutions. All of this is in act of faith. And you know, I'm getting I'm getting some push to, to, to write. If you notice, it ends in 1994. Yes. A lot happened between 1994 and 2020. So that's sitting out there as a a possible. I don't know whether I'm up for that, but I know that there's enough of the story that could transfer into current day, but we'll see. We'll see how this is received. Well,
0: I hope it's received by the reading public. Not our narrow universe of the clergy sex abuse and the law and all of that, which of course has taken over both of our careers, but the reading public needs to read this. We need to educate the world. I've always said until we get some kind of commercial at the Super Bowl, we have not penetrated to where we need to be yet. We need to be talking to people who are sitting in their living rooms. And are they don't know anything about
1: this we need people to say enough. yeah, we need children you know i it's a harsh statement, but i I wrote it and I wrote it with feeling uh, i I came to the conclusion that children were not one of the constituencies no, they're not
0: they they're, the children are um, they're collateral damage. Yeah, um, and the whole way in which the church has brought this into their system and kept it for thousands of years is really, it's it's just about making sure the men and the prophets continue, and the image and the power continue, and the kids are like, yeah, that you know, they'll be
1: fine. Exactly. Which is uh, why
0: this is an antidote to that.
1: It it is. It could be. Uh, but your point about the reading public, that's the people. And that's why I deliberately sent it outside my arena of uh, associates. I wanted to see what people who didn't know anything about this. Mm -hmm. And the, so far, the unanimous response was the story. They had no idea the complexity of the story and how it relates. I mean, there's, there's any number of things that, um, can occur from this point forward, but I think the one thing uh, that your work has done, and what this book has hoped to do, is to get the issue in front of rank and file people. Yeah, um, there's a great bumper sticker out there that you know bishops love their children. You love your children until they're born, and yeah. tragically, you know, you got you got the pro life uh, movement. As an actual uh, money maker for the church, and you have an extant criminal conspiracy that costs them money. So, where are they, they going to put their attention? Uh, and until there is a complete disgorgement of every single document that relates to this, um, we're not going to begin to even open the door to get behind it. Because if there is a complete global disgorgement of documents, that's the first step to repairing this damage. It took centuries to create this problem, it's going to take a long time to undo it.
0: Well, and you know this is the paradigm of the cover up that we then see in other religious organizations and then u- universities and schools and so this I think is the most important of the cover up groups because it's so huge. And it's been in baked in for so long. So if this gets untangled, I do believe that we'll make some progress. But Steve, congratulations on an amazing absorbing book. Thank you for those days that I did not do anything else. And uh, I hope everybody, I have my copy right here. I hope everybody will think about um, this is the book that uh, they need to read by the end of the year
1: because it's gonna change the world. So, thank well, you. I hope so. And I, I hope that the sale, I mean, you keep pushing this. That's great. And I hope this creates an enormous pot of money for the three organizations to share because that's really important to me. I mean, you are all heart. And I, I just so that our listeners
0: understand, Steve is donating the proceeds from the book to Child USA, to Bishop Accountability, and to SNAP. It's just remarkable and we're incredibly grateful, but also we're promoting it because I read it. This is a book you need to read. It really is. Appreciate it. So, thanks. And uh, thanks so much for spending the time with us today.
1: Sure. To-
0: we'll be, um we'll be back in touch soon. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can always find more cutting edge information about the protection of children at childusa.org, and we're always interested in your thoughts about what needs to be done for children. Thanks so much. We'll see you next podcast.